0: Welcome to the Canucks Hour with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dreadniz. The game underway with Kirk Fraser dumping the puck into the Calgary zone. And tips the Gordine right in front for Steele. He scores! And eight seconds into the game. This is where Vancouver talks Canucks.
1: Ten seconds left. Marcus Naslin to the net stop. Scores!
0: Scores! Matt Cook! Catch it in! Messer passes back through the middle for Pedersen off the bench. Took it off a broken stick and scored! It on the back end, elevates it over Peter Barasic, and the Canucks win on
1: well, the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. The Canucks
0: are back on the road, they surprisingly struggling the Colorado Avalanche team. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co host, Thomas Drantz. Hello. There we go. Now I'm on. Am I on (laughs) air now? Yes. Anyways, it's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. As I said, joined by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Uh, Thomas Drance, of course, covers the team for the athletic. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, before we go any farther, it is, of course, November 11th. As you heard just coming into the show, of course, that means we are observing Remembrance Day. You heard uh, some of the thoughts we put together, the moment of silence as well. Uh, Not a lot else to add to that. I'll I'll just simply say it's always been a very solemn day, a quiet day for me. And I'll say that to those who have served, sacrificed, and certainly those who ultimately lost their lives, uh, we do remember and we will remember. Uh 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dumbarlumber.com. We want to hear from you. 650-650 throughout the course of the show, show. Canucks back on the road, as I said, in Colorado, and normally you look at this as one of those very, very tough games on the schedule. The Avalanche of course, we all expected to be a Stanley Cup favorite coming into the year. They are stacked with talent, but a little bit surprisingly, struggling out of the gates so
1: far this year, Drancer. Lower point percentage than the Vancouver Canucks. That's not easy to do, considering how Vancouver started the season. So, uh, kudos to them. No, I, look, the Avs have had a ton of injuries. They've had a ton of, um, you know, instability in their lineup. They're still getting some good performances from some guys like Logan O'Connor, I suppose, and, and Bowen Byram, but... You know, this team, the Canucks are facing both this team and Vegas at like yep. exactly the right time. And and that's good because they've had the opposite effect, right? Like they've played Buffalo and Detroit while Buffalo and Detroit still had a burr in their saddle, right? <laughs> still had a sense that the season was ongoing. Those are very different opponents in the last 12 games of the year than they are out the gate when they're like, we're playing fun hockey. We skate fast. It's great. Um, this is sort of the flip side of the coin. Like, finally, after having faced Anaheim and Buffalo and, um, you know, Detroit early in the season while hope still remains, now they're facing a pair of juggernaut teams. Teams that will be deviously difficult by game 60, by game 50, uh, while they're banged up, while there's sort of bodies churning in and out of the lineup. Um, You know, they need they need to do well in these two games. Like, I think you need at least two points considering the quality of the opponent, but but really probably a little bit better than that considering where they're at right now and how far behind the eight ball the Canucks have put themselves yeah it
0: is a massive opportunity you certainly don't want to overstate right oh wow, hey this is a pretty easy game for the Canucks. no that's no. that's obviously not the case uh still a tremendously talented Avalanche team missing Nathan McKinnon tonight but they are Kale McCarr will be making his return to the lineup it looks like Valerie Nikushkin will be back as well still waiting for confirmation on that so look we'll, we'll dive into the Avalanche and how they match up with the Canucks throughout the course of the show but you know, it's uh, it's enough to say that there is still a lot of dangerous, dangerous talent on this team. So the Canucks just wrapped up, not that long ago, their morning skate in Denver. Not a lot of surprises from uh, what they put out there on the ice. The forward group is going to line up the same as it started the last game against Anaheim, which means... Obviously, a lot of line together, Horvat, Pearson, and Hoaglander, Pod and Dickinson-Garland, Dowling, Lamico, and Bailey on the fourth line. Tyler Mott still an extra. Uh, just before we move on, from the forward group perspective, no big surprise that it's the same. I guess the one thing is we know that Travis Green now has the flexibility to put Horvat between Colson and Garland if he wants, and we've seen how, that, how effective that can be. So I, I would say you look at that just because it's starting that way, We're going to see different looks throughout the course of the game too. We'll
1: we'll definitely see different looks, and hopefully, we can see Pedersen and Miller play between Garland and Colson too. But I just don't think that's going to happen until the Lotto line is. You want you want four forwards out there? I want I want them to churn both all three guys through those forward groups, right? And then and then you can also play Dickinson to help your fourth line, which which let's be real, this team needs. I mean, you don't need twelve forwards necessarily. You can go down to eleven if you're double shifting some of your centermen through the third line and then Dickinson-Lamico is sort of like a fourth-line pair and Bailey and um, and Dowling sort of cycle through that. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, that's sort of ideal, I think, particularly because the fourth line is not getting it done right now. Like, the fourth line's not getting it done. And, and Travis Green will talk to the media shortly. Presumably, he'll confirm a starter. Obviously, it's going to be Demco. Yes. And then... You know, we'll see what Mott's timeline for this road trip looks like. Um, You know, clearly the fact that he's with the team means he's close. Um, You know, be, be very fascinating to see, A, how they create space for him in the event that he's ready to come back. And B, what type of impact he could have on the fourth line. My guess is... Not an insignificant one. Yeah. Like, I I bet it's pretty good. You
0: never want to put too much stock in a fourth-line player coming back into the lineup. Now, Mott has played on the third line at different different points with this team, but realistically, you want him on your fourth line. You never want to put too much stock into a fourth-line player making his return to the lineup, but as we've talked about it, his importance on the penalty kill and the way this fourth line is struggling right now. Yeah, Tyler Mott could legitimately have a major impact when he does eventually get back in the lineup. So the other interesting note from really the main headline from Canucks game day skate in Denver today was that Jack Rathbone and Kyle Burroughs are skating together on the third pairing on defense. And that means Oliver Ekman line Larson and Tyler Myers are together. Quinn Hughes and Tucker Poolman together, as we've seen so consistently. And no surprise, after he was called up from Abbotsford, of course, Travis Hamanick on loan to Abbotsford because of his vaccination status, not able to accompany the team on their American road trip. Jack Rathbone looks like he will make his return to the lineup skating on a pair with Kyle Burroughs tonight against the Avalanche. And for me, the Jack Rathbone plot line is a very, very interesting one because, you know, we talked about it a lot earlier in this season, Drancer with Pod Colson. the importance of taking that young player and finding a way to expedite their development and get them to be the kind of best version of themselves as quickly as possible. Well, we're seeing that start to pay dividends with Colson. We've already seen him move the needle a lot more over the last few games for this team than he did... In the early part of the season. I look at Jack Rathbone in a very similar light. This team needs a Jack Rathbone that's a consistent contributor to meet their expectations this year. And, and, you know, he had some positive moments early in the season. Obviously, then it was a healthy scratch, sent down to Abbotsford. I look at this opportunity, him getting back into the lineup and... The team needs it. I think Jack Rathbone needs to step up and grab the opportunity. But ultimately, they need to get Jack Rathbone to a place where they trust him and where
1: he is making an impact night in, night out for the team. They do. And with Rathbone, you know, we've only really seen him play. Like, he's played 50, or sorry, played like 87 minutes. played like 90 minutes-ish at 5-on-5 for the Canucks so far this season. Uh, The exact number is actually, yeah, 99.39. So, He's played almost 100 minutes for the Canucks this season. More than half of those minutes have been played with Kyle Burrows. You know, Kyle Burrows has played well, but that pair's only doing okay, yeah. right? That pair that pair started really strong. The first three, four games, no one was generating anything against them, and then they became a little bit high event. Um, You know, Jack Rathbone, like the Canucks are surrendering 36 shots against per hour with Jack Rathbone on the ice at five on five. Um, That's a problem. Like, that's not the type of safe minutes that any team or any coach wants from their bottom pair, especially from their bottom pair lefty when they have two guys who reliably exert some gravity on the game above him in the lineup in Oliver Ekman, Larson and Quinn Hughes. Right. So really where Rathbone needs to get to in terms of staying in the lineup is providing a little bit more safety. On the other hand, though, the offensive metrics when he's on the ice are really good. And the Canucks need that, right? Like their five on five offense is actually the weakest part of their game right now. Even if we, you know, think we sort of saw the big guns start to get going a little bit toward the end of the road trip. Like a lot of that was special teams or a weird five on five goal that actually was shorthanded or, you know, (laughs) power play stuff. So five on five, this team's still not generating enough. Rathbone can help them there. He can help them break out. And and one thing that I think has sort of held him back from staying in the lineup or sticking in the lineup or staying on the roster, even beyond his waiver status, right? Is His waiver exempt status makes him the easiest guy to yeah. send up and down with uh, the Hammonick uncertainty lingering over this team. You know, I do think the thing that's held him back the most is that with Rathbone on the ice, opposition goaltenders are saving 98.5% of shots five on five. So. The shooting luck, not just Rathbone's shooting luck, but for every Canucks player that's on the ice with him, is really bad. And it's hard to see the offensive value in, like, an offensive defenseman who's...
0: If, if the points aren't coming. Who, yeah,
1: Not just the points, yeah. but any type of a goal-oriented offense when he's been on the ice through this first 100 minutes. Uh, but that's a mirage. The fact is, is that he's probably the second-best offensive defenseman on this team uh, behind only Quinn Hughes, right? So you know, at least in terms of driving the river, at least in terms of using his own feet to create offense and, and create things in zone. So, you know, I think they're going to need Rathbone, but I also think we're coming up against some diminishing returns here a little bit because of the fact that Ekman, Larson, and Quinn Hughes are both on that side too. They both play so many minutes. And and finally, you know, because Rathbone doesn't kill penalties, right? That He's not like... Because he's not, he doesn't kill penalties. Because he's probably not going to be a guy that the organization projects as a penalty killing defenseman over the long haul. Anyway, you sort of look at where he's at, and he's not a redundancy for when Tyler Myers or Kyle Burrows or Tucker Pullman or Oliver eggman Larson take a penalty in this game. He's kind of a different type of player, and and I don't know that that's the type of player that the Canucks feel right now that they're like absolutely in need of, like that can't take out of the lineup.
0: It's tough, though, and this text comes in, uh, Burroughs struggles a bit. He's probably an ahl and they need a regular on the left side, and I think that's fair. Kyle Burroughs has had some really nice moments and some nice games for the Canucks, but ultimately he's an organizational depth player, and especially playing him on his offside alongside Travis Hamanick or Luke Shen, as we've seen so far this year, that's obviously not an ideal situation. And I, I completely hear you, answer, what you're saying about You know, when you already have Quinn Hughes and OEL on the team, Jack Rathbone is maybe not the cleanest fit as your third-pairing left-side defenseman. But I also look at the other options and, well, who are the There's not necessarily a clean fit anywhere in the organization, right? And I think Jack Rathbone is ultimately, again, if the best version of Jack Rathbone is the best fit in that spot. It's just, as you point out, it's an awkward fit. But at a certain point... I think you have to be willing to live with a bit of an awkward fit if it means you're getting a more talented player in the lineup and on the ice.
1: For sure. And I agree with you, except that this team feels right now, and, and with good reason, that, you know, their big flaming issue, right? Like their yeah. big, massive, like, it's on fire and we need to put it out before we can get to other things like, you know, growing crops and developing prospects is, you know, the, pa- the, penalty, the penalty kill, kill right? Yeah. Like it's a, you know, smoldering crater is not too harsh, right? It is a travesty It is, <laughs> his, yeah. you know, it's, it's awful. It's league worse. So as they sort of look to that and what they need to fix to get it on track, uh, a lefty defender is like pretty high on that list. A second lefty defender's got to be maybe behind only a right-handed centerman. And so as they sort of go through this, like I won't be stunned to see them try to add in that spot. And, you know, if you're going to try and add in that spot, you kind of have to do it now. Like you kind of can't wait for a month, the point of doing that move or doing a move designed to help you in those areas is to stabilize things so that you can keep chasing the pl- – like, so that you yeah. can – you don't have to back out of your am- preseason ambition of what this roster is constructed to do, which is make the playoffs something they're clearly not on pace for so far.
0: Uh, this one comes in. Johnny Mack 650-650, says, through 21 games last year, Ole levy was only a minus one, had some great moments on the penalty kill. They moved him out – Prematurely, I would call it anything but premature. With Oli Levy, now you could maybe squint and say, "Oh, hey, he could help the roster in this way." But great it, moments
1: it, on the PK, Oli Levy. What are we talking it, about? It was
0: it was just so clearly done with Olio Levy. It was up, over.
1: He didn't show up to camp in shape. Yeah. Like I don't know what anyone premature. They should have. They should have dealt him two, two three years yeah, earlier. Exactly. Right? Like
0: it's, it was anything but premature. Yeah. Ultimately, and, and again, what a joke. Let's think about. What we're talking about here could Ole Levy help the penalty kill more than Jack Rathbone? Sure, but let's not get him confused with you know Prime Nicholas Lidstrom on the penalty
1: kill or anything here. It's not.
0: It's not as if Ole Levy is coming in and revolutionizing what your PK
1: is doing. Y- Levy wouldn't be playing on the penalty kill anyway. You think they'd have Levy in the lineup over Jack Rathbone? A. A. Anyway, no. B. I- even if he was, even if magically he had like come into camp in shape and won and won the eighth. Sort of defenseman yep. job, and he was in the lineup tonight instead of Jack Rathbone. Do you think he'd be killing penalties over Kyle Burrows? No chance. Like, what? We, it's ridiculous. Yeah, no.
0: It's uh, it's look. I understand it. I I always when, when you have a pick that high and he's out of the organization, there's always going to be the temptation to look back and kind of say, "What if? What if?" But it was just done. It was it was time to move on. Long past time to move on uh, for Oli Levy in this organization. So you know, we're talking about the awkwardness of the fit on the roster right now for Jack Rathbone. (laughs) And I still maintain, look, ultimately where this blue line needs to go is Quinn Hughes and Travis Hamanick, Myers and OEL, Rathbone and Poolman. That's, that's to me is the, and I know there's the penalty killing aspect of it, which they're obviously extremely concerned about as they should be. But I just look at it with the players available with the players at hand. That's your best six. That's what the goal should be to get to. Yeah. Now, having said that, Yes, there is a little bit of awkwardness with Jack Rathbone because he's an offensive-minded defenseman playing behind two other offensive-minded defensemen. OEL can do both, obviously, but you know what I mean. And he doesn't kill penalties. That awkwardness isn't going away because, as you might have heard, Quinn Hughes and OEL under contract for many, many more years after this one. Those are your number one and number two left-side defensemen for the foreseeable future and beyond for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, I think Jack Rathbone is... Pretty exciting young player, but if that awkwardness, if that fit isn't going away, and the club doesn't see any future for him as a potential penalty killing defenseman, do we start to think, okay, maybe he's a potential trade ship
1: for this team to leverage at some point? I mean, it's one of those it's one of those tough ones for for the following reason, right? Is that If this team was poised to be, like, going deep in the playoffs, then yes. Then yes, you'd look at Rathbone as a huge redundancy and maybe use that redundancy to upgrade elsewhere in your lineup. Ideally, honestly, with, like, a right-handed version of Jack Rathbone, right? That would make a huge difference. But this club's not going deep in the playoffs. And Jack Rathbone is 23 and is really talented. And so I don't think he's the type of piece you look to move right now, right? Like, I really don't think they can afford to be throwing pieces that age overboard in exchange for short-term gain. Like, that's kind of what's got them here is just a a perpetual love with every shortcut. They're like, it's like they've never heard of Waze and they just take all the (laughs) Google Maps shortcuts and now they're lost. Like, now they're they're on the highway and stop and go and, like, somehow the Ducks changed lanes and are ahead of them and they're like, what's going on? Um, So, you know, but, but I do think it's a natural, it's a natural redundancy to have multiple puck moving lefties who your organization sort of doesn't view as penalty killers. That sort of does translate naturally to like a surplus that you might consider dealing from. I just think in this moment that the Canucks are in where they've, you know, doubled down on this roster on this pursuit of the playoff chase, it hasn't gone their way through 13 games you kind of need to stabilize things before you make tough, tougher decisions about the long-term path that you want to chart, right? Um, I mean, I, I think you'd have to be getting a similarly aged player, um, you know, who's either who's either like a third-line center with a right-handed yeah. shot, who's like already a 45% face-off guy in the NHL, or a, a right-handed third-pair guy. Um, and, and unless that happens, and, and a right-handed third-pair guy who you'd play for sure ahead of... Poolman, yeah. Which is a pretty high bar. I mean, you know, I, I don't really want to see Pullman play with Rathbone because I don't want to see him have another skilled lefties, um, you know, <laughs> moments of possession bobbled and, and sort of killed on his stick. Uh, I kind of like the idea of OEL with Pullman better. Yeah. And then, and then Rathbone with Myers, for example. And then obviously Myers will play more yeah. as the game goes on because yeah. that's how they do it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thought of, of, over the long term. I just think where this club's positioned is so in the middle, so in between everything that they kind of have to let a promising player like Rathbone find his way a bit before making that decision. I,
0: I'm very much on team there are no untouchables, right? Like you, you should be willing to explore trade scenarios for basically every player on your team. And I know it's more complicated than that because of the personalities involved and and the relationships, I understand that. But certainly Jack Rathbone, it's not as if the idea of exploring a trade using him as a chip is outlandish but as you laid out it would need to be such a specific return coming back right and and for me if if a, if a trade was motivated by the fact that he they don't see him as a future penalty killer that would be really troublesome he's played 16 games in the NHL right? It, mm-hmm. I, it's way too early for, from my perspective to close the door on the idea of him being an effective penalty killer at some point in his career, right? And and lots of texts are coming in on a similar thought, right? Rhino says, Rathbone, Hoaglander, Podkholzin have all been really good players to get to this point. Why can't they learn to be penalty killers? Isn't that the coaching staff's job? I'm tired of hearing this team has no PK. Teach. Coach them. Uh, other texts coming in uh, along, the same, uh, along the same lines. Capitol Hill Ron says, Why can't these defensemen be taught in Abbotsford how to work the penalty kill? Shouldn't the coaches be making some of these defensemen specialists? Uh, Maybe they should tell some of these young players that this is the way they could make the roster. And look, it's not as easy as just, oh, hey, we'll turn everyone who comes in to a great penalty killer. That's not how it works, right? There has to be a certain skill set. There has to be certain potential there. But it's also, he's played 16
1: games. You can't close the door on the possibility just yet. Sure, but go look around the league at who leads the NHL in ice time on the PK, right? Like... The guy who you look at and say that guy could be a PK specialist is Triamkin. It's like he can't move that well. He can't really pass the puck. But boy, boy, oh, boy, in a stationary defensive is position, <laughs> is he is he a massive guy who we're not too worried about getting hit by vulcanized rubber at 90 miles per hour on a regular basis? Like, you know, Mark Fistrick is like the perfect pen- penalty kill specialist defenseman. We're talking about guys with limited mobility. We're talking about guys who are huge, like... You know, six foot four, six foot three, two hundred plus. Like, yeah. you know, we're we're talking about a profile that's just a little bit different overall from what we're talking about when we talk about Jack Rathbone. Like, Jack Rathbone can be a really good two way defenseman. I think he can be a good defensive player in the NHL because he's a heads up guy. I think that part of his game is going to take a bit. But if you go look through like who plays the most penalty killing minutes in the NHL, and you find Ben Chirot and Ryan McDonough and Slavin. You know, Jake McCabe, Connor Murphy, Aaron Ekblad, Petrie. Like, it's you're you're gonna have to go pretty far down the list before you get to a guy under six feet tall. To be totally honest with you, right? Like, you you know, in the twenties maybe. In the twenties, you'll get to uh to a guy, but you're m- much more likely to find on your way there guys like Patrick Nemoth who do nothing else, right? Do literally nothing else. So, you know, it it's just it's a Position and maybe this is self-selecting by NHL coaches. I mean, I'm willing to consider that there's an
0: element of that. It doesn't selection, it, it, but that's bias not all. SFLA. It is. That's not all.
1: It is. It's not all. It is. It's. It's that in a stationary defensive phase of the game, speed, right, and and passing ability is not the less priority. Important. It's far less yeah. important than you know, blocking shots, overall defensive awareness, and the ability to outmuscle a guy. When it comes down to like Warren Fogle jamming a puck in back door, right? Like think about all those greasy penalty kill or power play goals that the Canucks have surrendered this year, right? It's can you make a difference in that moment? And that's sort of what people prioritize. Yeah, the other thing that's tough for me to wrap my head around with potential Rathbone trade is
0: it's not as if they have a wealth of exciting defense prospects coming up, right? I I know Jet Wu is is in Abbotsford, his NHL future very much up in the air. You know, then you're looking at guys like Victor Person, Yoni Yermo, right? Who, at this point,
1: are still complete complete unknowns. Well, they're right? not complete unknowns. It's even worse. They're sure. Not, they're they're not players that tend to be selected to play, represent their country at the U-20s, right? Like, these are not even, like, Arvid Kosmar-quality prospects. I'm going to upset Chris Faber, who's uh, manning the P's and Q's for us today. But, <laughs> you know, a Victor Person, like, a, a nice value selection in the seventh round, having a nice start to his WHL season. But if Victor Person's on your top ten prospects list,
0: you're in trouble. Anything you get from those guys at the NHL level is pure gravy. You, oh, it, it, can't, it can't factor into what you're doing at the NHL level if Yoni,
1: if Yoni Yermo at any point develops enough that you could trade him for a comparable pick, that would be an unlikely outcome at this juncture based on how he's performed in the last two years, right? Like, since that pick was made, he's done nothing. Yeah. It's been a real problem. They're going to get nothing from that draft class. They're going to get nothing. That That draft class is going to stand in, like is going to fit in with the worst of the Gillis year draft classes like the Patrick McNally year is going to look like that right like that's what we're talking about when we talk about the 2020 Canucks draft class there is nothing there there's nothing Victor Persons the only guy trending positively and and I guess I mean that I can think of maybe there's one other guy but I mean even that it's trending positively as like in his fourth, seventh round pick, and his draft plus two season, he's having a nice start in the dub. Like, sorry, that's not exactly an exciting thing or something that's going to bring value back in a trade.
0: Yeah, so you're not exactly dealing from a position of strength if you go down from a from a. What I mean is from an organizational strength, right? I would not call the depth on defense an organizational strength for the Canucks, which makes it hard to contemplate trading a young NHL player with upside
1: like jack rathbone
0: uh 650 650 is <laughs> the dumb bar position lumber line. of strength
1: you and me again are like standing at the elevator like <laughs> waffling between our left and our right feet like you go first you go first that's far too polite i'm a very tactful person Jared not said. only is the blue line at the nhl level the achilles heel of the team and and primarily at fault for the club's lack of success on the penalty kill but there's also nothing coming like we have to put call a spade a spade this blue line is is really not good enough, not even close. Uh, tact is is what sports radio is all about. That's right? <laughs> what everyone. That's what everyone
0: wants when they flip on the radio, and turn on the podcast. It's just yeah. a real tactful host. <laughs>
1: uh, the Canucks' right side, you know, yeah. it could be better. <laughs> could could be a little better.
0: I like this one. Uh, this is a this is a deep pull. Bring back Mackenzie Stewart.
1: For the penalty kill, that's a, that's a name I haven't heard in a long, long time. Uh, did he sp- he misspelled Mackenzie? There's no I. <laughs> McK- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, nice try, nice try, Texter. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Hey, I liked there was a take on um, there was a take I liked from the inbox too that I that I just want to bring up. Let's quickly. do Hold on. We got to okay. take a break.
0: We'll do it. We'll get into it after the break. You can all wait with bated breath to hear what take Drancer liked from the text message
1: inbox. It wasn't the one that misspelled Mackenzie Stewart. I'll give you a hand.
0: 650-650. If you want to take your shot at, at uh, impressing Thomas Durant's with a text, get it in <laughs> to the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Lots more coming up. We'll look ahead to tonight's game. Make it game And the matchup with the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, you've got it on the Canucks Hour Sports at 650.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get bounces. I think it was, uh, you know, with a goal called back, and um, I think it's just, that's, for me, I think, those things are, those things will come. I think it's just working on my 200-foot game, obviously, that's obviously a, a lot of the reason why I was sent down here. So um, I think that's uh, that's gonna be a key here going forward. But like I said, some sometimes you get the bounces, and sometimes you don't, so.
0: That is Canucks defenseman Jack Rathbone speaking earlier in the week. As we mentioned in the first segment of the show, Jack Rathbone did some really nice things when he was playing in the NHL with the Canucks. This year did not necessarily get the bounces, though, to see some goals go in while he was out there. Uh, He will get his shot. Hopefully the bounces start going his way. He will be in the lineup on a pair with Kyle Burrows, the Canucks' third pair, when they take on the Colorado Avalanche tonight in Denver. Uh, Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And of course, the Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650 and Drantz as we mentioned just before the break, somebody uh, somebody caught your eye
1: in the 650-650 inbox. Well, I just wanted to bring it back to this because as we frame any discussion about Jack Rathbone's long-term fit and the possibility of trading him to upgrade the Canucks PK, I thought this text in to the inbox, and it's from Anish from New Westminster. I, I thought it spoke volumes. Ready? He said, hey, boys, to help the PK in the fourth line with the unknown status of Sutter, how about trading a sixth-round pick? for Jay Beagle and I bring this up just because I think it's important as we consider <laughs> just how bad the Canucks PK has been that we've had real serious suggestions that the Canucks revisit the Jay Beagle era and in fact give up an asset to get him back that's how bad the Canucks PK has been and I think that needs to at least be like the headline in our discussion like I wanted to reframe the discussion with that in mind um, It's it's been that bad. Uh, the Canucks are going to see another
0: right shot centerman from years past tonight in Colorado. Jason Magna is getting games in for the uh, Colorado Avalanche. Maybe he could come in and give a little boost to the penalty kill. You're right. When when people are texting in asking to give up picks to get Jay Beagle back in the fold, you know there is something dire happening with the Canucks penalty kill. Um. I want to look ahead a little bit more to tonight's game. You know, we talked about the Avalanche off to a bit of a, a slow start. Part of that is injuries. Nathan McKinnon is going to be out for them tonight. And, again, we said it on the show yesterday. You never want to celebrate. You don't want to look at the perspective of, oh, wow, what a great opportunity for the Canucks that Nathan McKinnon has an injury. But it, it, it does change the complexion of that team. And as much as you can look – at the other stars on the roster for the Avalanche and Kale McCarr and Mika Rantanen, Gabe Landeskog, McKinnon stands above them. He's one of those handful of players who can just take over and dominate a game all by themselves for basically the whole 60 minutes. It seems like sometimes, so it is. You know, it's it's a chance that the Canucks have to, you know, at least have a better a better shot at taking two points
1: from this game against Colorado tonight. For sure. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, they need to they need to capitalize on this trip, right? It, it, the, the opponents are tough in that we think they're good teams, but they're at a point where they should be gettable, where they have to be gettable, considering the ground Vancouver has to make up if they're going to catch some of the Lions in the Pacific Division like the Anaheim Ducks, 17 points, <laughs> my goodness. Um, you know, everyone in the Pacific probably is looking at the standings right now and thinking, we got a shot. Right? Like, there's no. Oh, team. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And and none of them are wrong. Like, what's happened to Vegas has created, you know, a, a, like an open door to waltz through if you're capable. And even if you're not capable, like, even if you're San Jose or Anaheim, you know, both teams have significantly outperformed the Canucks at this point. So I don't think we should be laughing at, you know, that possibility right now. The, the LA Kings, the LA Kings look legit. They look legit. So. The Canucks need they need to do well here. They need like they, you know, they need four points at least from this road trip if they're going to claw their way back in to, you know, the company of the Ducks. And <laughs> it's true. And I'm the, sorry. I know it's I know it's silly, but it's true. The vaunted Anaheim
0: Ducks of the yeah, Pacific. The dangerous Anaheim, Division. Anaheim Ducks. You know, we'll 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 look ahead to the Vegas game a little bit on tomorrow's show, but I do look at this it's easy to kind of lump Vegas and Colorado together and say, two teams we all thought would be good, and they're both struggling right now. I think when you look, when you dig into the numbers a little bit, Vegas, and yes, it's in large part because of injuries, the The underlying results for Vegas are legitimately poor. Very, very poor. Vegas is in right more now. trouble. Yes. Colorado, you dig into the numbers, okay, they actually look pretty good. A lot of the profile looks pretty good. I think two things have really been holding them back. Beyond just injuries, one is their power play is only clicking at 10%, which is shocking. And it's legitimately not that dangerous right now. And and you just think of a
1: a power play that can put out Kale McCarr and Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen. Yeah. And Rantanen's the key, actually. Yeah. Rantanen's the best passing big man outside of Nikola Jokic. And Denver has both of them. I don't think I've ever seen a winger his size... Who's that effective as a playmaker? I'm not kidding. Like, no one thing, one thing for you to watch for if you're just interested in watching really cool hockey players do wild things tonight is when you watch Miko Rantanen play. Watch how he plays. Like most big players will play with a stick pretty close to their body. Like they'll they'll play and use their frame to protect the puck. Miko Rantanen plays like his hands are out front of his body. Like he's a five foot eight guy and can lean on a low center of gravity, <laughs> and he's just he's skilled enough to pull it off. No one can get the puck from him, and it makes him such a dangerous playmaker as a power forward. Honestly, honestly, if there's one player that he reminds me of the most um, from the last twenty years, it's Todd Bertuzzi. Todd Bertuzzi was the best playmaking big man yeah. I'd seen. I know people remember like the charges to the net, but what I remember most is how much space he opened up for Naslund, um and and the passing that he had. Like, that's what Miko Rantanen sort of does for the Avs when he is on. Just 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 watch the position of his stick for a, for a man that size. It is completely unique in this league. Yeah, he's an exceptional player. And oh, again, Incredible. You know, so even with McKinnon out, you still
0: have to deal with the likes of Rantanen. Kale McCarr is confirmed that he will be back in the lineup after missing a few games. So that's another extremely dangerous player that you have to contend with. But I will say, you know, the, the power play clicking at 10%, and as you said... The, the just beyond that headline number, it doesn't look great for them either. And, you know, we've already had this conversation a couple times this year, right, where a struggling team comes to town or a team that, you know, one special teams unit isn't doing so well. And you look at it and you say, hey, that's a great opportunity for the Canucks, right? And you look at this and say, hey, they're, they get to go up against a struggling power play. Good chance for the Canucks penalty kill. But you know
1: what everyone in Denver is saying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Just the medicine we needed <laughs> is coming to town. That Canucks penalty kill. This is what's going to spark well, the power play. And they're not wrong. I mean, here's the thing that we need to, like, the Canucks have done enough things that I like at 5-on-5, five five, particularly now that the Horvat line and that garland pod Colson duo is kind of firing, that I'm I'm willing to give them the, another 10 games. Yeah. To show, to show us what they are. But at some point, if we keep saying, great opportunity for the Canucks, and the Canucks keep missing that opportunity. 100%. I mean, that speaks volumes. Yes. That tells you who you are. Um, you know, the Canucks still have some time. They still have some time to show us who they are. We, all we know right now is that they put themselves well behind the eight ball and have certainly shown us nothing that looks playoff caliber other than the goaltending, I, I think, to this point. But they, they have time. They have time to write. This story, they have time to show us who they are and show us that they are the team that we might maybe thought they could be going into the season. Uh, Granted, I I didn't really think they could be, but the market really thought they could be going into the season. So, um, but, but that has to start, like it has to start pretty soon here. This is, this is another one of those opportunities that the club has to take advantage of. If they're going to be one of those types of teams that can take advantage of opportunities at all the other thing in addition
0: to the pe- uh, the power play that's really letting the avalanche down so far Uh, is the goaltending, right? Darcy Kemper coming over from Arizona. And, you know, Darcy Kemper, he's never really been your true number one guy, but he had a nice run of success. Last year
1: wasn't as good in Arizona, and this year he has continued to struggle in a big way in Colorado. Uh, Behind a Rick Tockett team that, like, plays the most aggressive shell game you've ever seen. Like, And I don't think that, by the way, like, I don't think Rick Tockett is a purely defensive coach. I think Rick Tockett looked at uh, his group of forwards and then looked at the fact that he had – Jason Demers and Oliver Ekman Larson and Nicholas Yalmerson and Alex Goligoski and was like, well, I'm playing defense. And yeah. the way that they did it, you know, why why do you think Oliver Ekman Larson looks like a different player in, in a more up-tempo system? Like, it's because he's not a purely defensive defenseman. And and there's a few systems in hockey that I genuinely believe are different, that that I believe genuinely create really odd results. The Canucks are facing one of them tonight. The aggressive Puck moving of the Colorado Avalanche, I think, creates some very, very odd results uh, uh, for their forwards. Um, also creates some really exciting hockey. The Chicago Blackhawks under Jeremy Colliton, and we'll see if they still look like that. Uh, defense optional system, they have this odd regroup. It almost looks like a roller hockey regroup where they, it's not the flying V, but that's the idea. They sort of break out as a five-man unit from behind the net. Almost no one else did used to, or still does that. Uh, but the Colton Blackhawks always did. And then Rick Tockett's Arizona Coyotes played some like absolute kitty bar the door type hockey. And I think we're seeing in real time the impact that that had on Oliver ekman yeah. Larson. So. It's an interesting sort of thing to watch for too, when the Canucks play the Avs tonight, and and one to keep in mind as you evaluate why Ekman-Larson's been so good, freed from those shackles. You mentioned the the puck
0: moving in the mobile defense from Colorado Avalanche, and obviously we think of Kale McCarr, Sam Girard, uh, Devontae's played his first game of the year in their last game against Columbus.
1: By the way, they haven't played since Saturday, so gonna be a well-rested Colorado team and, and at elevation. Yeah, and and do not ignore. Like I remember pulling. Sasha Barkov after a first period to do a media interview, and he was just like, "Okay, I need a minute." And he like, sat there yep. huffing because he just killed it. He just finished a PK shift, but he sat there huffing. This is the fittest guy I've ever met, like the fittest, most world class athlete I've ever met. Um, you know, it's it's a tough slog if you're not used to it. Yeah, so factor
0: that in when you're when you're looking at tonight's matchup. A well rested team, as you said, at at elevation for the Canucks. But what I wanted to highlight is. You know who's been a major bright spot for this Avalanche team is BC boy Bowen Byram, oh, former Vancouver incredible. Giant, who at age twenty he's played the most five on five minutes of anyone on the team. He's just uh, at a per game basis, he's just a few seconds behind Kale McCarr, and he is crushing it in those minutes. He's twenty years old; they're leaning on him like a stud. He's performing, and you know it's interesting because with with Trevor Zegres coming in with the Ducks and Bob Colson starring. Uh, for the for the Canucks or not starring but playing an important role for the Canucks we've kind of had had opportunity to revisit that 2019 draft here at Rogers Arena of course Bowen Byron was the fourth overall selection, and I just he's uh, what a phenomenal player. What a phenomenal pick that turned out to be. No surprise to anyone who watched him playing his WHL with the Vancouver Giants, but I just you you have to talk about the impact he's having for the Colorado Avalanche. Absolute
1: so far. star. And so's Taves, right? And yep. you know, there's a, there's like a story. They played for a like U sixteen team out in the valley. Devon Taves and Shea Theodore played for the same team. And that team had such bad goaltending one year that they only won like seven games. They were like the worst team in the in the league by a lot. I've always wanted to find out exactly what that season was like because how do you have two top pair NHL players, Like track, future track down the goalie as like young teenagers, and the team wins seven games? They're like seven and twenty three, last in the league. It makes no sense. Uh, one of my favorite like local bits of hockey lore, but yeah, I mean the what's funny is when this team is healthy, right? They'll they, they'll run. Like, Bowen Byram, Kale McCarr, Eric Johnson, Jack Johnson, um, like, Sam uh, and Ryan Murray, potentially, right? Like, all of those guys, like, Ryan Murray was, like, the second pick. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Jack Johnson was the third pick. Eric Johnson was a first overall pick. Bowen Byram, Kale McCarr, both top five, right? It's, like, the lowest drafted guys on this defense core are, like, Sam Gerrard, who was early second round, and and Devontaves, who was fifth. But, like, it's incredible the pedigree of this halves blue line, like it's it's almost unheard of. But to to turn around and get Makar and Byram back to back. I mean, what's this defense score gonna look like when those guys are twenty five? I mean, just dominant. Yeah. Just absolutely dominant. It, it 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 almost looks right now
0: like they've added another Kale McCarr to the group, right? And who knows what Byram's ultimate season or ultimate ceiling is, but the way he's playing right now, when you add that to what they already had in Kale McCarr, what they already had in Sam Girard. I mean, it's just a tremendous, tremendous unit setting up for years to come uh, for the Colorado
1: Avalanche. I, I want to talk about two things, but first I want to read a text because I thought the the texter made a really good point, And it was one that I brought up to you in the break, which was the Stars waved right-handed Blake Como. I saw he has taken some face-offs at a rate around 50%. It's actually about 45%. And he's definitely a... Like, a supporting like yes. when when a center gets kicked yeah, out of yeah. the draw he's the guy who comes in but he is right-handed he has taken you know an average of 50 uh, 40 or 50 a season um he also is jason dickinson's longtime penalty killing partner so you could graft two guys who've killed a lot of penalties together and done so pretty effectively including in the playoffs for the for the dallas stars in 2020 onto your roster he only costs a million so you can later bury him at no cost He's good. I like Blake Como a lot. And and I brought it up to you the moment I saw him on waivers, yep. I thought that makes sense actually. If you if just as a guy to apply a band-aid and give you a right handed option, he's not gonna do well there. He's not gonna do well off the draw. But can he do better than everyone else you've got right now? It it's for me, for me, it's worth a prorated one million dollar salary to find out. And the thing is, okay,
0: he's not a center. And, yes, the number one need on the PK is a right-handed center. But he is right-handed. He can't take draws. And it's not as if the only thing they need is a right-handed center,
1: right? Like, okay, a good penalty killer is available. Great. Go. It doesn't matter what position he plays. Totally. totally. Go get him. Yep. Go get him. And the fourth line sputtering. Like, and the he he can help your fourth line. Like, he can help your fourth line. There's chemistry and familiarity there with Dickinson. There's, in particular, chemistry and familiarity with Dickinson in an area that the club is struggling in particular – and they've played a ton of minutes there together, know each other well. Um, that's a tempting one for me. That's a tempting one for me. I don't love the like guy hits waivers and everyone's like they should claim that. He's guy. the solution. <laughs> although although I do do it myself sometimes, like when I did it for Dylan Gambrell, a right-handed centerman who uh, ended up in Ottawa. Uh, Canucks probably should have claimed that claimed him. Anyway, uh, I do it here and there, but uh, but Como's one that definitely stands out for me. And then here's another one I want to bring up, right? Like the Abs. Got Bowen Byram, right, through the Matt DeShane trade. Uh, A phenomenal work of of general managering by uh, Burnaby's Joe Sackick that sort of created an environment where I think it would be a surprise at this point if the Avs didn't make a really deep playoff run at some point before Nathan McKinnon's super valuable contract expires. So part of the reason, though, that DeShane became available, right, was this team under Patrick Waugh had this miracle playoff run they completely revamped the way that NHL teams play six on five. They were like the best end game team in NHL history. It was incredible. And then they regressed massively. And then they regressed again. They had two really bad seasons following up on that. Sometimes that happens. Like sometimes development's not linear. In the case of the Avs, they, they had to rethink some of the old school ways they were going about a- approaching the game itself, but also player transactions. And also, it was that Nathan McKinnon came in and was an absolute superstar, Calder winner in his first year, and then sort of went into the wilderness for two, three years before yep. he found you know, the hyper-competitive spirit that has him grinding guys in the group chat for eating a Rice Krispie Square, uh, as Nikita Zodorov hinted about. Um, and that's true. Like, I heard stories during the pause. Like, during the pause in particular, he'd, like, send photos of his salad <laughs> to the group chat and be like, we're winning the cup this year, boys. Like, Ugh. Anyway, it took him some time to figure out that side of him and and become the top player that he is now. And everyone sort of thinks of him as a sniper or whatever. He's the best playmaker in hockey. He's the best 5-on-5 playmaker in hockey. Killer shot Just so physically assertive. Phenomenal player. Just You can't say enough good things. Top top five player in hockey. But it took him a bit. He wasn't just like, he wasn't on a trajectory that just sort of exponentially kept going. There was a dip. There was a multi-year period where people were like, does Nathan McKinnon have the hockey sense to get there? And I only bring this up because we've spent a lot of time talking about Elias Pettersson's struggles this year, right? And I, I, I mean, I'm not worried about Elias Pettersson being yeah. a, like a, a player of consequence in this league for the next decade, but I, I don't know that we're going to see the best of him this year at this point. Right. I, I still think we probably will. I think he'll sort of grind into gear fitfully at some point here, but just worth keeping in mind. And, and, you know, Quinn Hughes kind of had this experience last year, right. Comes in as a historically good rookie defenseman, sophomore year, not quite as good. This year is back to controlling games and exerting an unusual gravity, and, and you're not seeing the same types of defensive mistakes, right? Development isn't always sort of progressive and linear in the way we might want. It kind of bounces about, and as the Canucks play Nathan McKinnon's team, albeit without Nathan McKinnon, I thought it was a useful you know, a post to, to plant in the ground anyway to ground our conversation and our continuing conversation about Pedersen's struggles. The only caveat I'll offer there, and it's the the overall point about development
0: not always being linear is a really important one. With McKinnon specifically, he came into the league at 18, right? And had, had, had the Calder winning season. But, Then he had the three-year dip, right? But his return to superstardom or his emergence to superstardom, it happened in his age 22 season, right? At 21, he had 53 points in 82 games, 22, 97 points in 74 games. Since then, he's been phenomenal. He's been one of the best players in the league. Totally. Totally. Elias Petterson's in his 23-year-old season, right? right? And I do think that age is an important piece of context because Nathan McKinnon came into the league so young, right out of the draft, he could have a multi-year dip and still break onto the scene as a 22-year-old and become one of the best players in the league. With Elias Patterson, the timing is just a little bit different
1: than that. So again, it's not to say, it's not to undercut no, the uh, point about- It's an important point to make, I, but, but in terms of the NHL experience, right? He, yes. In terms of the NHL experience and and not having a multi-year dip. He had he had one injury-plagued season yep. and you know, a slow start to this year. I mean, we're not talking about a uh with with McKinnon, we were talking about a 160 game yep. sample where yep. he looked like a low-end top-line caliber player, right? With Pedersen, we're talking about a 20 game sample in which he struggled like the first 10 games last year plus these 13 games. We're talking about 23 yep. games in which he's been a low-end first-line caliber player as opposed to a, you know, historically good, potentially historically good young player. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, and, and then also consider that if you go the apples to apples, right, Nathan McKinnon's rookie year happened while in Pedersen's development curve, he was in the SHL just destroying everything for Vacqua, yeah. right? But then if you look at their age 19, 20, 21 in the NHL, like you take Pedersen's over that, yep. right? Now, now I don't think Pedersen's better than McKinnon or, or we'll get to that point necessarily by any means. But, I, but you know, there's a ton of different ways to sort of carve that problem up. I think the, the, the larger point though still stands, which is that, you know, it, it can take some time for guys to figure it out and tap into something that maybe separates them. And in, in McKinnon's case, it was that unique core of competitive steel. I think Pedersen had that a little bit more, a little bit earlier on in his career. We kind of haven't seen it as much, but I I do suspect it'll come back.
0: Uh, Canucks versus Avalanche tonight. Six o'clock start in Denver. Pre-game here starts with the People's Show at five o'clock. And then, of course, Sat and Bick have you covered on post-game as well. That's going to do it for us. We will be back tomorrow to break it all down. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650.